0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: I'm fascinated by how underestimated middle-aged women are. Uh, You know, once women get to be in their mid-50s, nobody cares about us anymore. And we are, nobody thinks about us having long careers or being intelligent or, or having any worth. I mean, it's all like the hot young chicks that everybody writes about.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then, the real work begins. Join international best-selling author, J.D. Barker, and indie powerhouse, Jay Thorne, as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting, do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Ink.
2: Hey, how's it going, JD?
3: Hey, man. My daughter is out on the driveway crying right now. Oh, no. What happened? They, they, they took her dumpster away. <laughs> it, it she I'll apparently she them. thinks, yeah, she thinks of this as, as her dumpster. Like we just demoed um, the final three bathrooms in the house, and we did We just needed a small one, um, but the company got back to us and like, well, if we send this one over, we'll we'll send it to you at the same price. And it, it, it literally came on a semi. I mean, it's a giant one of those really really long ones. It's got a door on the one end, and like when it was empty, she was playing, and she thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But like we filled that up between us and our neighbors, and yeah I mean, like she heard the beep, big truck. She heard the beep, 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 which always gets her excited. <laughs> and then she went to the back door, and she started looking. And my my wife's got her on video, and she's like, "Oh no, Ember's dumpster," because <laughs> she sees them taking it away. And and now now she's just sulking and very very upset with with both of us because we're horrible parents. That's
2: a sad moment in a girl's life when her dumpster gets taken
3: away. <laughs> I've never seen anybody get physically attached to a dumpster before, but I, uh, anything can happen, I guess. So what's going on with you?
2: Oh, well, I, uh, I'm i really enjoying the revisions on the manuscript. I'm making good good progress. I'm getting towards the third act as far as sequencing and cleaning some things up and uh, getting getting ready to write the screenplay. Uh, one, one question I had for you, though, I kind of think I know where you land on this, but I wanted to ask you for the benefit of listeners, too. What sure. is your position or opinion on having the F word in your books?
3: <laughs> I've got a love hate relationship with the F word because I, in in my own life I, I I used to swear like a sailor. Now that I've got a toddler at home that you know mimics everything, we're very very self conscious of that. Um, but in my writing, I, I still use it. Um, you know, and it's funny. We we talked about this before when Fourth Monkey first came out because of the the monkey in the title. Amazon's algorithm somehow coded it as an animal cozy, um, so it got in front of all these. You know, I just pictured little old ladies with a cat curled up on an afghan on their lap. You know, opening up the Fourth Monkey, and I, I think I dropped an F bomb like in the first couple of paragraphs. Um, so my first few reviews were like, "Oh my God, he used horrible language!" and he said this and he said that. Um, there's a lot of people that won't read the book if it's got that which is kind of shocking to me um and me and patterson had a, had a talk about that because he said that he gets accused of using um the f-bomb quite a bit um so it, when i was writing that first book with them I, I purposely steered clear of it and then i started putting them in there just because it felt weird to not have it yeah. you know when, when you've got I mean cops cops swear yeah. you know <laughs> people swear so I, if there's another word that fits that doesn't degrade whatever is trying to happen you know like if somebody hits their thumb with a hammer they're not gonna you know unless they're that woman from misery you know most likely they're gonna drop a, a nasty word um, so I, if it's, if it needs to be in there for those types of effects, I, I usually leave it. If it can be replaced by something else, I'll take it out. But a, as an author, it's, it's one of those things you're going to need to make a conscious decision about, like, are you going to use swear words or, or not? Because it'll, it'll follow you not just with this book, but your next book and your next book, because readers will drop you if, if you, you know, don't do it in this one, but you do it in the next one. So yeah. it's one of those, those rules you kind of have to set for yourself. Okay, cool. I I don't. I don't remember you having a lot of them. Do you have a lot of them in there?
2: I I don't have any of them in there now. I I intentionally didn't because I. But I'm in these places now where I'm like, wow, this. Like, there's only one way to express this emotion for this character, (laughs) and it's not shoot (laughs) or darn, you know. So like, I'm. I don't know. It's something I'm thinking about in the
3: in the revision process. Well, something else just to consider, like if if they actually film this as a, you know, you're you're writing a screenplay for it. uh, If you use the F word more than once, you automatically get an R rating. You can't, you can't have two F words in the same movie without an R without them bumping your rating up, which I I didn't know until I started getting into this process. Hmm. Um, So, so you make you know, but you can cut it off. I mean, you'll see a lot of movies where they, you know, that word starts to slip out and then, you know, either there's some background noise or a person turns their head or whatever, you know, but you don't hear the rest of it. And they're, they're getting really good at, at sneaking them in there. But yeah, yeah, there's crazy rules all across the board when it comes to that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Quick, quick side note. Uh, we haven't said it on here, and when it's been said, I've bleeped it out, because if you have it, you get the explicit tag in iTunes, and then certain full countries will block the the podcast from showing up in their country if if you have the explicit tag on it. So there are definitely commercial consequences for it, not only artistic.
3: Yeah, but is it a benefit? Like, when I was a kid, um, you know, Al Gore's wife basically... St- started that in that entire thing where where they had to you know start putting labels on record albums, yeah and, the good old p m r c yeah she you know she she spearheaded that and, and as a kid, you know, I was a teenager in high school and like we purposely you know, like saw it out, you know, Same. like we saw that label where we're like, oh, we need to own that, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, I think it actually started selling more more records, so I'm not sure if it does that in the in the book world, but um yeah there there's a lot of these these little rules out there that you have to you have to think about, yeah, interesting you know. You know, I've been going through um you know I, I do a lot of mentoring on the side aside you know not, not just with you but with with other clients and I've been reading a lot this week because we I, for whatever reason got an influx of, of these guys um I, I just wanted to throw a couple things out there because first of all life is too short you know to read a bad book and I think that's how most you know yeah uh, you know, any kind of reader I think at this point they kind of do that like it, it's very easy to put a book down and pick up another one you don't have to go to the store anymore I mean you can just download it or you can do whatever but it, it's real easy to, to make that that swap so I think a lot of people won't read a book if it's if it doesn't grab them. They'll put it away. Um, One of the the golden rules that I personally have, or I I feel like when I'm reading a book, like if the writing is solid, I'll literally forget that I'm reading you know, like you get, you get caught up in the story and and like your brain almost switches off, or at least for me, where like, I forget that I'm even processing, you know, words on a page anymore. Like I'm, I'm that lost in the story. And that, that to me is like, that's the best, the best reading. Um, and, and certain things that I'm seeing this as I'm going through these, these potential uh, mentoring clients that, you know, take me out of that, that zone. Um, a lot of writers, especially the first time out of the gate, they, they tend to overcomplicate things. Mm. Um, they, you know, like really long sentence structures or complicated sentence structures that don't necessarily need to be that way, or they feel it's necessary to throw a lot of those million dollar words out there. Um No, <laughs> please, please do not do that. In uh, most mass market, you know, if you're, you plan to write to the mass market or tr- if you plan to sell a lot of books, most of it is written at like a fifth grade reading level. Um, newspapers are anywhere be- between a third and fifth grade reading level. So, you know, it, I, 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 it, it, that's kind of the sweet spot where you want to be. So if you use a word that most people aren't going to understand and they have to put the book down to look it up or they have to highlight it in their Kindle to look it up or even if it just gives them pause and you know the rest of the words surrounding it clue them in as to what it actually means, any one of those things will take them out of the story and that's the last thing you ever want to do you know, to a reader. You want to keep them, you want to grab them, keep them in that story and not let them go and, until you know they have no choice but to put it down. So just some, some food for thought to people that are out there writing their, their first book. Like there's no reason to do that. Um, you know, just take a look at what you're, you're working on and, and, and there's plenty of websites where you can take your text and you can drop it in there and it'll tell you where you're at as far as a reading grade level. Um, I, I totally encourage everybody to, to get out there and, and try that. Um, and something else, and I don't know if this is just people working from home and they're trying to start new businesses up, but I've gotten, I think, four or five emails this week from people that, you know, marketing companies that want to charge me to send out a tweet about one of my books. Like, have you ever gotten yes, any of these? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. people, please do not do that. <laughs> uh, I mean, take take a look at who, who the person is that's sending it to you. Like, I, I, I mean, I've, I've gotten tweets from some very famous people before, and for the most part, they don't really move a whole lot of copies. I mean, right. unless it's a Stephen King, like, it, it just, it doesn't matter. Um, So if somebody's going to charge you, yeah, like I would never pay somebody to send out a a tweet or you know, me either. Post something on Facebook, yeah, like that. That to me is a a, a big no no. Um, and it, if you are considering that, at least take a look at their their list to see who they're actually sending it to, because you know they may have like two hundred or three hundred thousand followers on Twitter. But if you start going through that list, like those could be names that they bought. Right. Uh, it could be people they're just following that you know just have blocked them, like because they're spamming them with all this stuff. So yeah, you know, just it's stuff to keep in mind. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Excellent. Good point. Anything else uh, on your mind
3: before uh, we get into? Uh, I I always have this long laundry list of stuff. Uh, okay. The only other thing is, that, you know, I've obviously been playing with PrestaZone quite a bit on the, the yeah. Amazon ads. Like, I got an email from um, from Dirk over there, and you know, first of all, he's got some incredible tools coming out for authors, and I can't wait for that stuff to go yes. live. Um, but he had heard what I said about taking my own name um, and book titles out of the campaigns and creating uh, negative. Um, uh, keywords for him, um, and, and he had actually mentioned something that I hadn't uh, thought of. But he said that he actually encourages authors to create a brand new campaign specifically with those items in there, um, so that you can outbid some of these other people that are trying to, you know, get in front of you. Um, they he, he called it a branded campaign. So I, I'm going to go ahead and give that a shot just to see what happens. Um, yeah, it, I'm. He's, you know, obviously knows what, a lot more about this stuff than I do. I'm. I'm trying to understand the logic behind that because it feels like I'm paying three dollars for somebody to click on my name. Where, you know, when they were already on their way there to begin with. But I'm gonna give it a shot just to see what it does to the numbers. Um, because I, because I am curious. Um, and I also I found a tool out there, and I'll send you the link so you can put it up in the show notes. But um, from PublishWide, it's a, a KENP uh, royalty calculator. Oh, nice. Um, which yeah, it just comes in handy. So you just type in your your Kindle reads, and it tells you you know based on last month's um, payout out what, what that's actually worked. So that, that's kind of cool. Nice. And I think that's it. That's everything I got brewing here in the, the notepad.
2: Nice. Well, quick related uh, thing on that. I'll talk more about this, I think, on next week's episode, but I have a short series of nonfiction books around lifestyle mindset that I'm going to start releasing in a few weeks. And um, on um, Dirk is working with a guy who's building some ads for me and they're doing some experimenting. So uh, I'm going to try some things and then I'll come back and report on the show and let people know how that's been working. Uh, but I'm really curious to see, you know, the kind of results we get with presses on. And the guy who's building my ads for me manages hundreds of clients. So he kind of sees trends across many different uh, dashboards. So I'm um, really curious to see what happens with that.
3: Are, are his clients primarily authors or is he across the board? All with authors. Products? They're all authors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. Cool. All right. So who do we got today? Today we have Tess Garrison. Um, is somebody that I've admired for a very long time. She's a, a very talented writer, and she's been out there for for a while. She's uh, and and Isles. A television show is based on some of her books. The movie Gravity is based on one of her books. Um, a fantastic person to speak to if you ever get the opportunity to run with uh, run into her because she's just a wealth of knowledge industry wide. She's just she's been there done that for for just about everything. Um, she's got some cautionary tales which which are great because she's willing to share them. Um, but yeah, great great person. I can't wait to hear what she's got to say say.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a fun and interesting interview. So why don't we get into it?
3: All right. Here she is, Tess Gerritsen.
2: What's one thing about pigs that I might find shocking? (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, I don't think it's so shocking so much as you probably know they're intelligent. Yes. Um, They're probably, I guess, closest to cats in that they're really, they're self-centered. They do what they need to do to survive um, and they're very clever about it. So I think that's the most shocking thing is that they're kind of, you know, they're like us. They're so much like us in in terms of their intelligence and their self-centeredness and and their ability to adapt.
2: Interesting. And uh, of course I'm asking you this, not because I have a random interest in pigs, but uh, (laughs) you've been part of a new documentary. Can you tell us a little bit about that project?
1: Yeah, the documentary is called Magnificent Beast, and it started because I, I was in Istanbul and I, and I couldn't find bacon, and I began to ask people, you know, why do you think there's a pork taboo uh, in, in various religions for Jews and Muslims? And I could not get a really good answer. Everybody had a different answer. It was always, you know, mostly trichinosis. That was the one that everybody came up with, and I wondered if that was true. So my son and I took this journey looking for the ancient origins of the pig taboo And I think we came up with a pretty good answer after talking to a number of archaeologists and religious scholars Um, But what it opened up was the fact that the pig is such a unique animal and has such a unique relationship with us We eat them we kill them and they killed us and they eat us too. So (laughs) You know, it's um it's really brains against brains and i think they're probably one of the most brilliant animals on the planet.
2: oh it's fascinating. Uh, you must have had a blast making that.
1: oh we really did. we went around the world. um we uh, traveled to egypt because one of the theories was that it all started during, you know, during the jewish exile um, in ancient times. um and then we went to england because some of our biggest pig experts in the in the world are happen to be in england. Um, And we had a lot of pig owners that we interviewed uh, and that was I think Really sweet because these people love their pigs these pigs live in their houses with them They sleep in their beds with them. I mean, these are really truly like dogs Um, So you're seeing both sides of it You're seeing the side of the the dirty farm animal and you're also seeing the beloved family pet Um, And how how did that transition happen? Plus we um, we also followed the um, you know, the problem we're having with um, feral, feral swine in the United States, it's like 40 states and they are destroying farmland. And it's very hard to eradicate them, again, because they're too smart.
2: Wow. Uh, so the, the feral swine, is th- those are different than wild boar?
1: Um, well, they're actually, it's all the same species. Mm-hmm. Feral swine, it just means that they were originally domesticated and then they escaped and then they became feralized. And they begin to adopt a lot of the behaviors of their ancient boar ancestors. Um, so it's you know, they're it's it's all the same animal. They can all interbreed. They can all have babies. Um, but once they get out into the wild, um, they seem to pick up a lot of their old traits. Um, and it's fascinating to watch to watch how successful they are. They're kind of like the cockroaches of the animal <laughs> world. Or well, I guess we can say that about ourselves too.
2: <laughs> right? Yeah, you probably could. <laughs> yeah. Well, this wasn't the first time you worked with Josh. So uh, how did you go from uh, an indie horror movie to a a documentary about pigs?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, Josh has been a filmmaker since he was about, oh, 15 years old. And um, I've always loved horror films. And I just told him one day, let's make a horror film together. I mean, we thought it would just be like a silly little thing that we would do together and it ended up blowing up into this huge feature film (laughs) we learned a lot and in that process um i think i realized i really enjoy working with my son uh when it comes to film um because he he has he's really got an editor's eye and for the pig documentary he was our um director of photography he was our cinematographer um so i You know, we just work together on every single aspect of it from from the planning of it to the trips to the filming and to post-production. So we're we're actually sitting there together figuring out which fonts we want to use. But it was it was such a I guess it was one of these things where you always want to be close to your kids. But this was one way to not only be close to him, but really learn to admire his abilities as a filmmaker. Oh,
2: I love that. That's so It's so heartwarming. Uh, uh, did you have specific roles or did you two just kind of riff off of each other? Uh, did you kind of have to stay we, out of his way at some point?
1: <laughs> well, we riffed we ripped off each other when it came to the concept. What What was this movie going to be about? And it kept changing on us because the more we found out about pigs, the more we thought, oh, we got to go in that direction. So we were going in all kinds of different directions, chasing the story. Um, and it was only after we had... had I'm, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of filming that we sat down and looked at it all and said, oh, now we know what we're doing. Um, but when it comes to certain things like film, you know, the way he was filming things, I just stayed out of his way because he's very particular. Oh. You know, Mom, get out of the way.
2: <laughs> Mom, the lighting's bad. So I go, okay, Josh,
1: whatever you want. But I think it was, for me, it was more a concept and putting stuff together, that's where we work together. But uh, everything to do with the visual stuff, that was all him.
2: Yeah, do you find working in film to be uh, a break from the process of writing? Is it something you enjoy, is something you uh, Uh, you explore?
1: Yeah, well, what I love about documentaries, I mean, feature films, when you're doing uh, narrative films, like, you know, indie horror films, there is a lot of pressure because you are dealing with a lot of different people and you're dealing with actors and that becomes I mean the, the pieces that have to be put together are so complex that it was it was stressing us all out when it comes to documentaries it's just our team of, of Josh me and our sound person um, and it's very simple and the best part is being able to follow your curiosity and say I want to find out now about this. Let's let's go talk to somebody about trichinosis. Let's talk to somebody, you know, about intelligence. And and it's it's almost it's just like fulfilling your curiosity. And that was the best part of it. So we're hoping to do another documentary, and then and then, you know. The pandemic happens, so we're all stuck at <laughs> home. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, hopefully, you'll get a, an opportunity to to do that at some point. in the I future. hope so
1: too. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I was uh, in my research. I came across something. I think this is true, but uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll tell me if it isn't. Uh, why is your favorite movie Invasion of the Body Snatcher?
1: Oh, it's very psychological, and um, I'm talking about the original one. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the the remakes. I think there must have been two or three of them, um, and it had to do also with probably the age I was at when I first watched it. Um, And those who haven't seen it don't realize it. It's very, very much. It's, it's it's a horror film, but there's no violence in it. It's all about um, people you love suddenly changing and they become pod people and you don't really know why. And as a child, that's one of your worst nightmares is you wake up and mommy isn't mommy and nobody believes you that you know that that's not your mother. Um, so it's, it's really very much a metaphor for, for alienation, um, for people you love suddenly becoming different, um, not loving you anymore. And I think that's what, that's what made it so deeply disturbing to me as a child.
2: Yeah, I could see that. I'll bet you were also a fan of Hitchcock and Twilight Zone too. Oh, yes.
1: Yes. Well, you know, I grew up with a mom who loved horror. And so we would every every time the twilight's over, come on, we were all there in front of the television. My mom took me to Hitchcock films. and You know, I just remember being in I guess we watched it in the drive in the birds. Oh, yes. And oh, that was really damaging for a child. I shouldn't have watched it. <laughs> i I couldn't look at birds for for a very long time after that without shuddering
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so did your mom read horror as well or was she mostly a fan of horror films?
1: Well, you know she didn't she didn't understand English very well. she was an immigrant um and you know her primary language was was Mandarin. but horror films are so visual that it doesn't really matter if you can understand the dialogue because so much of their, of it's played out on, on the screen. And that's probably why she liked horror films so much. And that's why I got dragged to horror films as a child.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and are, are you, do you still currently write screenplays?
1: Yeah, I had, um, I have a screenplay um, that we maybe will be the next project after we finish our, our next documentary. Um, but it's based on my book, Bloodstream. Um, and I had a, a lot of fun doing it. And what I wanted to do was do another film that was set in Maine, um, just because it's a lot, you know, it's easy for us to film in our home state. Um, and this time, I'm going to take in, I'm going to use all the lessons I learned from the mistakes we made in our first horror film. Yes. Um, so my son and I want to want to get back to work on that. Although it's it's quite a challenge because again, you're juggling 20, 30 people um, on set. So. I don't know. It's 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 sitting on my desk, waiting to be filmed. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: would you ever consider selling your film rights again?
1: Sure, I would. I mean, yeah. pay me enough, I'll, I'll sell yeah. <laughs> anything. <laughs> um, I yeah, sure. Uh, but I think there's there's a real joy uh, in having control over your project and being able to you know to, I love this sort of guerrilla stuff where you're just. You're just doing everything on the cheap and, and thinking about juggling budgets. There's, there's a, there's a joy in doing that and coming up with a product that you did, um, on your own for really not, not that much money.
2: Yes, for sure. And you have a a long storied history, a, a massive back catalog, uh, been very successful with your commercial fiction at this point in your career. How do you decide which book is next or which genre or which story you want to tell?
1: You know that is really tough because there's what I want to write and there's what the publisher wants from me. Um, you know, I had written twelve Rizzoli and Isles books, and honestly, I felt that I wanted to do other things, uh, and so I did. But all my readers, they just they just want the same book over and over again, <laughs> and and my publisher would be very happy if I were to write another Rizzoli and Isles book. Um, so I had, I was working on, I had just started another novel about a female spy um, when I kind of got talked into going back to do Rizzoli Isles again. And that's what I'm working on right now. Um, so it's number 13. It's a, I wanted to make it a little different from my earlier one, so the focus is more on Jane's mother. Um, I'm fascinated by how underestimated middle-aged women are.
2: <laughs> oh, really? Uh, you how? Know, well,
1: once women get to be in their mid-50s, nobody cares about us anymore. And we are, nobody thinks about us having long careers or being intelligent or or having any worth. I mean, it's all like the hot young chicks that everybody writes about. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to write about middle-aged women characters who really have this depth of experience, their lifetime experience, and what do they bring to to their careers? What do they bring to crime fighting? What do they bring to observation? So um, this will be, uh, a lot more about Jane's mother who may have witnessed something and nobody listens to her because she's, she's just a cop's mom, you know.
2: <laughs> I think my wife would back you up on that. <laughs> when, when you write now, I'm sure it's very different than it was earlier in your career. Are you considering other mediums? Are you thinking about film and TV when you're writing your novels or do you just kind of put your head down and, and tell the story the way you know how to tell it?
1: Oh, I don't think about I don't think about film at all when I'm writing my novels. I mean, a book is a book, um, and a screenplay is a very very different animal. So I I put on a different hat for when I write one of those things. Um, no, I think that you have to you have to just be aware that this this is going to be read. It's going to be enjoyed on the page. The other thing there's there's a wonderful thing about novel writing is that you can get into people's heads. You don't have to. You know, it doesn't have to play out on the page. You can actually get into people's heads and hear what they're thinking. And so there's a, there's a depth to novel writing, which you just really can't get um, when you're writing script.
2: Yeah. What What does your What does your typical writing day look like? Do you Do you have uh, certain times of the day, a certain place you like to write? Um, you know, any kind of details. We're junkies for the process.
1: I know it's really funny because the process is the part to me that's like. Who cares? (laughs) um, I have a home office and and I have, my office looks out over the ocean. In fact, I'm looking at the ocean right now. Um, And I try to write, okay, now everything is changing right now um, because I'm not under deadline. I don't sign contracts ahead of time anymore. I just write the book and then I turn it in and then I have a contract. So there's nothing that's pushing me to finish a story. And the result is I take forever <laughs> to write a book. <laughs> um, if, if it's a good day, I'll write four pages. You know, I'm happy with four original pages. Uh, and that means that usually takes me about six months to finish a first draft and about a year to finish the entire book. I do a lot of rewriting. Now, the one thing about my process that may be different from a lot of writers is um, my first draft is with pen and paper. Oh. I can type. I can type a hundred words a minute. I'm really fast. That's not the problem. It's just that when I start to see words on a screen, I want them to be fully polished, and then I will end up editing, and never get ahead in the story. So I I like to handwrite because I allow myself, to, you know, I r- allow my writing to be flawed for first draft, and that's really important to allow yourself to write crap the first time <laughs> through, um, and then you just fix it the second time through. Yeah, I,
2: I'm. I still want to try that. Uh, do you do you take your handwritten pages and type them in yourself, or do you hire someone yep. to do that?
1: No, no. Nobody can read my handwriting. Oh. <laughs> I, have to, I have to be the one to write. And when I'm typing it in, there's a little bit of editing going on That's right That's where about I was there. going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's some editing going on right then at that point. And then um, I, t- I type it in, I print it up, and I work off the paper again for my next draft. It's just, I just need paper.
2: Yeah, I, I imagine that when when you've gone from the ideation in your head to getting it out of your hands onto the paper and then typing that into the computer, by the time it gets into the file, it's probably a fairly clean draft.
1: Yeah. I, well, um, Somewhat. <laughs> maybe the third, maybe the third go round, the third revision, because honestly, my first drafts, because I don't, I don't do outlines, I don't. Uh-huh. I don't know ahead of time where the story is going. And this is, this is really, you're getting me at a really bad time now because <laughs> I'm in my first draft and I'm about a third of the way through the story and I have no idea who did it. Oh no! <laughs> and I have no idea why they did it. And I and so, so I'm, I'm going through this period now where I, I just, I walked away from the manuscript two days ago and just thought, I'm going to let this sit for a while until I figure this out. So my first drafts are all over the place. I'm, I'm writing myself in the blind alleys. Um, and so the first draft, when I type that in, it's purely rough, um, no idea what's going on. By the time I get to the third draft, I have all the plot points figured out, and then from then on, it's just—it's really just polishing. So I do a lot of drafts. I probably do about six drafts.
2: Wow, great. Okay, yeah. And and uh, screenplays and novels aren't the only thing that you write. Uh, you've been blogging since two thousand five. Uh, Really?
1: (laughs) Uh, You're probably right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, Do do you still blog
2: regularly? I mean, I saw some posts, but
1: yeah, I don't. Um, you know, what happened was Twitter, Twitter happened. (laughs) And it's so easy to get lost into that. There's so much going on and, um, I'm, I'm very focused on, on worldwide events. I mean, um, you know, things are happening so fast. It's a, the year 2020, oh my gosh, what a year. <laughs> um, so it's that, and I'm also finding that, um, I'm not sure people are actually reading blogs anymore. I don't know if they I mean, they were reading mine. So, um, but there's so many other things that I'd rather be doing. So that I'm, I'm writing, um, yeah, doing screenplays, writing books, and and trying to just stay up to date with current events.
2: And how about some relaxation time? Do you get any of that?
1: Oh uh, well, yeah. I just spent three hours weeding my garden. That's my <laughs> relaxation. I mean, it's really fun. There's, I was saying up to people. There's something. There's something really destructive and yet deeply satisfying about weeding. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: You're killing things left and right at the same time. You know, you feel good afterwards. Yeah,
2: it's like yeah. You step back and you look at that bed and you're like, I did that, and it's nice and brown right. and even, right? Yeah,
1: I could right. see that. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Do you still hold uh, little workshops for physicians in Maine who want to become novelists?
1: No, I don't. Um, I did that for about 12 years with Michael Palmer, the, the late great Michael Palmer. Uh, we're both medical doctors and, and uh, you know best selling authors. Um, but after 12 years, I think we, we just got tired out. It's uh, you know teaching is really exhausting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was a, it was a weekend workshop where you were there probably six hours a day with a hundred students. Um, and trying to tell them what you know. And it sucks the energy out. It sucked the energy out of me. I did not find it energizing, and maybe Michael did. Um, so I, after a while, I just thought, you know, this is taking too much out of me. Now, that workshop is still going on on Cape Cod, but I think they have new faculty. Ah,
2: okay, okay. Well, maybe you planted a seed there. We'll say stick with our gardening analogy, right? You planted a <laughs> seed and it's still growing, so that's good. It's still
1: growing, yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Oh, awesome! Well, I think as we pull the conversation to a close, I'd like to ask you one last question, and mm-hmm. this is—we'll just have fun with this. I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, at least I don't think you do. But uh, you've been in the industry for a long time. Uh, yeah. Wh- where do you think the the publishing industry is going?
1: Um, I. <laughs> this is a really tough. Question: Because I have been wrong every single time before <laughs> I didn't think digital I didn't think digital novels were ever going to take off and that look what happened. They're 50% now um, I think we've reached an equilibrium between print and digital uh, I'm not I don't see either one actually overtaking the other we I think we're just gonna stay in this this mm. solids this this, you know fluid state for a while and um, what I am concerned about is that because of, um, and I realize that by the time this airs, this may be old news, but we're so used to staying at home and not doing retail shopping anymore um, in brick and mortar places that, that may maybe push things more towards the digital end. So that's what I'm concerned about, that, that print books may be, may be suffering. Um, the other thing is that we have so many other things to occupy our time, especially with streaming. So I think a lot of storytelling is going to be going to screens. It's going to be, you know, limited television series and movies. And um, it's it's going to be very much more of a visual medium.
3: All right. That was Tess. What'd you think? Oh man, what a fascinating woman, right? Oh, so Um, great. Yeah. First, first off, pigs are awesome, but so is bacon. So is bacon. <laughs> yeah, I've got such a love hate relationship when it comes to food because my wife was, you know, vegetarian and, and hardcore vegan there for a little while. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tough call for me because you know I, I love bacon. I love chicken. I love steak, <laughs> but, um, you know, at, at the same time, I mean, I, I've had friends that have had pet pigs and, and they are just as smart as dogs, if not more. So, um, yeah, it, it really makes you question a lot of that stuff my, my sister has a farm and they, they've had cows out there um and I remember when her daughter was young her daughter named all the cows and then you know a couple months later those cows went away and they went away they with the dumpster
2: to, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah you, you can't tell them they went off to the farm right because they, <laughs> they're they're leaving the farm so where did they go next um the, the, the next year she didn't name the cows so I, I guess they they clued her in but um yeah, it's funny because that's not something that I would have expected from Tess. But no, know, and yeah, I, she's just—I know—and I think
2: that's like she was so warm and, and so engaging. And I think it's one of the things I really enjoy about this. Is I, I'm I'm always learning too, and, and what I'm trying to do now, the deeper I get into this, is find something really interesting that's non-writer related and and try and open with that because we're all more than just writers, and and so to hear these different interests and passions that people have. Um, it, it's really cool. There's a few, I don't want to spoil coming up that are, that are quite funny, but uh, this was a perfect example. Like if you looked at Tess, you wouldn't necessarily connect her with a documentary film about pigs. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, but just really good stuff.
3: Yeah. She's a fantastic musician too. I, I think I mentioned this before, but she's got a book called playing with fire. Um, and there's a particular song in that book that, that plays a big part. And, and she actually composed the, the music for that song and you can download it from her website. Um, to just a very you know well-rounded, talented person, um, and, and I didn't know that she actually worked outside of the thriller world. I didn't know that she had you know such a she was such a big fan of horror. Did did you yeah. know that?
2: I didn't, and and I was really impressed with her knowledge of of Hitchcock and uh, sort of the '70s classic horror movies. It was really impressive.
3: Yeah my my wife's grandmother was was actually it sounds like a lot like Tessa's mother where you know my my wife when she was younger her grandmother used to sit her down and like let her watch horror movies on VHS and she had all the the classics back then and you know at the same time like my parents probably wouldn't have done that and my best friend I know his parents would never let him watch that kind of stuff because we always had to sneak over to somebody else's house to watch them um but you know it just shows how that how that can influence you later on and um you know her thoughts on invasion of the body snatchers I, I she was spot on with that and, and I love those those older movies because they they couldn't rely on special effects or anything like that to, to scare you. It wasn't about the jump scare; it was all about the the story. And it, you know, with that one in particular, I mean, she nailed it on the head. It's, it's really you know about losing somebody um, in your life, but you know, it, it's almost worse because they they don't die; they're still there. It's just not them anymore, and that, that's what makes it makes it so frightening. Um, back to the business stuff, um, you know, she had mentioned how she has a, she finds real joy in just having control over her product. Um, It's refreshing for me to hear that from somebody that's typically playing in the traditional world. Right. um, Because it it shows that she's, you know, she's open to, you know, to dabbling in in other things. Um, And she had mentioned uh, Rizzoli and Isles and, you know, that, it's one of those, you know, unfortunately, publishers, readers, everybody, you know, they, they want to put you into a particular box. You know, they they get comfortable with you know one particular book that you write or a series, and they do. They want you to write that one over and over and over again um, as an author. That's you know very difficult to do without you know without it going stale. Um, it's cool that she she's willing to you know put it aside at this point, write other stuff, and go back to it. Um, I thought that was that was fascinating. What, what did you yeah. take away
2: yeah I was also uh I, you know I, I was trying to be sensitive and kind of feel the situation out and i we didn't get to talk about gravity in any sort of extent, although I looked and on her blog she's documented sort of that dispute and and, and resolution to it, but I thought it was really encouraging that she wasn't like well i'm never I'm never selling my film rights again like she was still optimistic and positive and exploring ways to to repurpose her IP or, or resell it or license it in different ways. And I thought it was um, really impressive that she was still willing to do that.
3: Yeah, I, I think I'd love to see any, anybody that's, that's considering selling something or optioning a book, um, definitely just go to her blog and read that blog post because she covers every, every single base, everything that happened with it. And it, it's a, a very strong cautionary tale that we should all know before you know dabbling in that particular world. Yeah. Um, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, Something else she brought up, which I didn't about it or didn't know is she writes her first draft on pen and paper Pen and paper i know <laughs> <laughs> but you know she explained it and it makes sense because you know i type 120 words a minute my handwriting is is terrible um which is actually something that happens like i was talking to my uh, one of my neighbors he's a doctor and he was saying that if you, you know, regularly type and you don't write you know it, it changes the muscle structure in your hands which you know is why your handwriting gets bad over time like the muscles you would normally use to write are, are become weaker and your typing muscles get a little bit stronger and it tends to create some really sloppy handwriting um but i but she brought up how it forces her to move forward and and i never really thought about that but you know it, it makes perfect sense i mean if you're writing it down on paper it's really difficult to go back and make changes and edit and, and do this and do that so you're forced to just keep going with that story and keep going and going and going and then you know eventually you drop that into a, a word processing program and and you can clean it up but um it's 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 cool i mean it's neat that it, everybody's got their own process and i love hearing something a little bit different and, and i never would have pegged her as a pantser You know, to me, she just seems like, you know, the kind of person that's going to have a detailed outline, like a perfect plan before she, she hits the ground. But, um, Nope, not at all.
2: (laughs) No. And I think it's a, it's also a good reminder that there is no one way to do this. Uh, you know, we're going to have, um, we're going to have Kevin J Anderson on the show, um, in the near future. And all of his first drafts he's been doing for decades have been dictated, you know, and her tests, she, she writes them out and, and, I, you know, she doesn't pay anyone to transcribe them. She takes her rough drafts and types them in herself. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum. There's, a, there's so many ways to, to do this. It's encouraging to hear these different perspectives.
3: Well, Sidney Sheldon, I don't know if you, you remember that name. I, I mean, do. He, he was king of the paperbacks. Uh, he used to dictate his books to somebody who would sit there and, and write it out for him. Um, and he was a pantser. And, and like there, there's video of this where he just he sits at his dining room table and just starts, you know, telling this story. And he's got somebody sitting right there next to him who writes it down for him. And then from there, you know, somebody else who puts it down and, you know, into a program and wow. they start cleaning up the text. And that's how he wrote almost yeah, probably every book that he's got out there. Um, and, and he was extremely prof- proficient. So or, or prolific. I mean, Um so yeah, everybody, you gotta you gotta find what works for you. We're we're all different animals, you know. We you gotta find what works for you and run with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was a great talk with Tess. Like I said, it was a she was very engaging and warm, and uh, made it really easy. And learned a lot from her. So that was super cool.
3: Yes, sir. So who do we have um, coming up next week? So next week we have Heather Graham. Heather Graham. Um, so she's another one of these authors. You know, she's got a, a million books out there. Um, she's been in the industry for a very long time. Uh, and she is always at uh, at Thriller Fest. Um, she's always wearing a long black coat. Um, and, and my wife actually asked her about this. week. We were in the elevator with her and because my wife loved the coat. And she's like, where did you get that? I really like that. And she's like, this is my conference coat. I wear this at every conference I go to. It's like, it's, it's like comfort food to, I, I guess, to her, but she, she wears that, you know, that coat. So if you see a, a blonde woman walking around with a long black jacket on, um, in the middle of New York, in the middle of summertime, that would be Heather Graham. Um, and she's an extremely friendly person and, and, you know, just like Tess, like she will tell you the, the good stories. She will tell you the bad stories. Um, and she was one of the first, you know, big name authors who, who gave me a blurb on, um, one of my books too. So she's not you know unwilling to, to do something like that to help somebody out, a great person.
2: Nice. That'll be fun. Already looking forward to it. Yes, sir. All right. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.